Welcome to the At The Coalface podcast with your host, Jason Greenwood. This podcast is all about what it's really like in the trenches of digital and e-commerce. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the At The Coalface podcast with me, Jason Greenwood, your host. And we have with us today... One of the hardest men I've ever tried to get onto this podcast, one of the hardest men in commerce to pin down, and I'm super, super grateful to have him here today. Welcome, Jay Myers. To- I don't do that on purpose, I swear. I, you know what? When you're connecting New Zealand and Canada, time zones are, are hard. I'm not actually that difficult. It's just a, t- it's a time zone issue, but honored to be here. Thanks for having me. My pleasure, mate. And look, we, we've obviously had a lot to do with each other over the years, and you are a luminary in the space. You're so well-known. And I guess Bold also is so well known. And for those that don't know who you are, the co-founder of Bold Commerce out of Canada. You've been running the business for over 10 years now. You had the, mm. you, you were rank all the owners on, on the leadership of the business, particularly in the early days, you would have been it. You set the direction for the business. And for those that don't know what Bold is or what they do, you guys are, well, you were, I think you still are the largest app vendor on the Shopify app store. And you've got thir- over 13 apps on the App Store today. You've had more in the past and you've consolidated apps over the years, but you're very famous in the Shopify app world. And you now have moved, pivoted the business quite heavily in the direction of, of custom checkout, headless and headless commerce functionality. But man, you guys have, have been in the Shopify space in particular for a very long time. Yeah, you hey, you nailed it, man. It sounds like bold pretty well. We And you're bang on 10 years, actually, just two weeks ago. We didn't make it any type of like, outwardly celebration but internally it was 10 years april 18th 2012 that we launched our first app on shopify i had been a a store owner on shopify since 2009 and so i i like way back when my my first started selling online in 1998 started with shopify in 2009 and then started developing apps 2012 the first one (laughs) went live uh, april 18th 2012 but yeah you nailed it actually we at one point got up to 36 apps that we had live and we would hear sometimes people refer to us as a swiss army knife for shopify and while that was cool in some senses it we we struggled internally a little bit what are we what problems do we really care about it's easy to make apps and it's easy to throw a lot of things out there and see what sticks over the years and i don't i'm not i don't say that's like necessarily like a bad strategy that any business can i think it's like you look at google and you look at all the different things they experiment with and some work some doesn't you got to be willing to try things and fail it's a little bit like the evolution we went on with apps like we were quick to build and quick to to uh, to discount to stop when they didn't work where we're at now is, yeah, you mentioned it with custom checkout around 2007, I think this was 16. We started building, we, we actually started doing it for, on. we had an agency side of our company, which we don't do agency work anymore. We're just product focused. We work with a lot of partners, but we started building a lot of custom checkouts for brands. Brands would come to us with, for doing whatever it was like they needed. I, the very first one we ever did was for time life and they needed a, a custom solution to the, this was back when DVDs were a thing, but it was like, you'd order a five pack of DVDs and it was a series and you'd pay, you know, five easy payments of 1999. That was like the business model. Uh, and so we built a custom checkout for them. Then it was another company called Chef out of New York. And then it just kept 
being one brand after another, we kept having to build just because it wasn't possible, mainly on Shopify at the time, but it wasn't, it's not necessarily about Shopify. It was more, some of these things were difficult to do in general. And then in 2016, we said, well, why don't we have a checkout that's, that's essentially, instead of building all these unique custom ones, let's have a checkout as a little platform that we build off of each time. Headless wasn't really a thing in 2016. We saw it more as a platform, like a, a checkout platform, essentially, which it's now evolved. And it's an it's a API based checkout that you could build um, and extend anywhere. I won't go into the full sales pitch because I know your listeners probably don't want to hear me sell it, but <laughs> that's what we focus on today. And we still are heavily focused on Shopify. We have close, I think actually over a hundred thousand brands using our products on Shopify and then, but also in the checkout space on, on big commerce tools. WooCommerce, and then platform agnostic too. So not even on specific platforms. Now, one of the things that I love about your, in particular, your Shopify apps is the fact that you guys were always, you were always on board the SaaS train. You obviously built your entire model around SaaS where you guys host the apps, you host all the assets that have to sit within the apps. You integrate via API with Shopify and you have your own APIs, both for your apps, as well as your checkout functionality. And we'll talk about checkout a little bit more uh, in a minute, but what, what I've always loved about you guys is, as you say, you're trying to be this one-stop shop for Shopify merchants. Now, Shopify today has over 8,000 apps in their app stores. It's difficult to be a one-stop shop for absolutely everything in Shopify, but particularly in the early days when there weren't that many apps on Shopify, I know me as a solution architect that, is, that has architected many hyper-complex Shopify stores over the years. Bold was a strategic partner in all the agencies that I've ever worked with, at least if they're a Shopify agency anyway, because you fill such substantial gaps in the platform. And at the end of the day, Shopify you know, does what it does very well, but it doesn't make any bones about the fact that it is an ecosystem, not just a platform. And they've worked very hard to culture the sense of an ecosystem around their platform. They've stuck to their knitting. Some would say perhaps a little bit too tightly. And now they're trying to play catch up a little bit with Amazon in some respects. But they've stuck to their knitting very tightly. And they have allowed the ecosystem around their platform to flourish. And I would say that Bold is one of the primary beneficiaries of that flourishing but by the same token, you've also added tremendous amount of value to the Shopify platform because you didn't go out and build all these apps for other platforms. You only built them for Shopify. So whilst your checkout product mm -hmm. is more platform agnostic and API-led and API-driven, the rest of your apps, and I'm guessing primarily the cash cow of the business that's allowed you to finance leveraging into these other areas, you have had such a laser focus on Shopify that is a super powerful and important relationship that you have with the First of all, thanks. I'm honored that uh, Bold has played a part in a lot of work you've done with Shopify. That means a lot Like we're when we're building products, when to hear that, especially from partners, it, it, it really means a lot. So I uh, really appreciate that. And you're, it's interesting when we launched our first app with Shopify, there was 20 apps in the app store. And uh, actually I just did a, a talk with the Shopify plus team last week for, uh, they do partner Thursdays where, so they just launched plus certified subscription category. There's uh, only three subscription apps that are plus certified basically means they have it's, it's vetted for their largest stores and has to pass a bunch of security tests and compliance and support and a bunch of other things. And then we do a, they call it a partner Thursday. It's like a 45 minute talk on, on what the app does. And so it was around subscriptions and uh, I showed them a screenshot of what the app store looked like when we launched our first app on Shopify. Cause a lot of the sales folks on Shopify plus, like they might've been there six months or a year. And a lot of them have heard of us, but some of them hadn't. So I didn't take it for granted that some hadn't. 
when we launched our first app, the screenshot was, I I'll message you this later, but it's uh it was apps, app icons on blocks of wood in the screenshot. It was literally, it looked like a 3d shelf and these app icons were sitting on a block of wood. That was the era. <laughs> That's what it was like. And there was 20 apps and Shopify was really early on. And what we saw was a lot of people who had any type of an e-commerce solution of any sort, they were one solution and putting it on every platform. And we just said, why don't we take the exact opposite approach and build many solutions for one platform? And of course it's a bit of a gamble, but it also makes you understand the platform intimately. You can build better for it. You become perceived as this platform. You're not just everywhere. So it was a strategic decision to, to just go all in and instead of building one app across every platform, uh, many apps across one platform and Shopify has been a fantastic partner. And obviously nobody knew there was 20 in 20, 2012, there was 20,000 stores at the beginning of the year. There was 40,000 stores at the end of the year, at the end of 2012, they had 150 employees just to put it, put into perspective. Like it was a, a gamble for sure. No one would have thought they would be head to head with Amazon and to, comparing them in the same sentence. Like their biggest threat was big commerce at the time. And it was a very different time. We were fortunate in timing in a lot of ways. Super exciting stuff. Now, what's interesting about this is that when I go to the bold website today, bold commerce, and obviously in the early days, you guys were really focused on demonstrating how your suite of apps, not only did they play nice on their own with Shopify, but that they played nice together. So that was another thing, I guess, that was really key in the early days was the fact that your suite, you always had interoperability and almost like codependency in mind, right? So you had this you had product options, which would work with discounts, which would work with bundles, which would work with, there were multiple apps within the app store that someone could implement. And sure, they might be amazing on their own, but they were also designed typically from what I can tell anyway, of course, there's some standalone integrations like your, your zero integration, or whatever, those are standalone, but there are many other apps in your suite of apps, particularly for Shopify that were designed from the ground up to be synergistic in nature, meaning, hey, you, yep, these will work great on their own, but if you install these three apps together, they almost give each other superpowers and they give your store superpowers. And was that always your intention from day one or was that a happy accident or a happy coincidence that developed over time? Or did you always have that vision for your suite of apps right from day one? That's a really good question. And it's actually two things. One, it, it wasn't the it was intentional that our apps played nice together whenever there was a, for, like, for example, if you're buying product with quantity breaks, maybe discounts, a sale shouldn't apply to it if there's quantity breaks or bundle pricing or different things like that. So like they had to play nicely together in that sense, but they also merchants wanted to use them together because there's strategic advantage to use a lot of these things together. So like you mentioned options, sorry, yeah, product options. So like for a, a common way that's used is integrated into our upsell app. If you pop up an offer and you say you're buying coffee and it's like, do you want to add a coffee mug with it? And if there's options for white, black, I want custom monogramming. I want my initials on the coffee mug, or I want what I can upload a picture of my dog. All of that lit can live inside the upsell offer. So the customer doesn't have to leave, click on the coffee mug. If they want to customize it, go to a different product page. And then there's five more clicks and they might abandon the, the shopping journey. But so we made sure that options work right inside the upsell window. They can customize it right there, but there's other things too. Like for example, we, like we have loyalty, um, the loyalty points app with customer pricing and subscription. Like those three are very common. Merchants just want to use them together because they want someone who 
subscribes to a product to treat them as a member so they earn loyalty points at a different tier. So while you're a subscribed member, like a Costco thing, you earn points at a higher ratio or you can redeem them as a, at a higher ratio. And then we have our customer pricing app, which controls pricing on the site based off of the customer and it ties into the customer tag. So these all work together. So you can create an experience where if you subscribe, let's use the coffee example. If you're subscribed to coffee, you're part of the VIP points club where you earn points at a higher redemption ratio. And while you're subscribed, you get VIP pricing. So you get 10% off the whole store as long as you're a subscribed member. And then as soon as you unsubscribe, you're back to regular pricing. So you can, in these scenarios, they, they don't even necessarily, they do integrate together, but it's more, it's not just that they have to integrate together to not break functionality. Like the example I gave earlier with quantity breaks and bundles, they integrate together to give a better experience to the customer. And so that's, so it was two things like we had to make them integrate together. So like things don't break on the front end, but also to integrate together so that stores can create better experiences for their customers. So it's on two levels. That's what I've always loved about your apps. And I've actually always loved about your business model. And and for those that don't know, I was on your advisory board for, for mm. a while. And, and that was amazing because, of course, the, the board was very open to having industry leaders come into mm. the business, give advice. The business was extremely humble in the sense that, hey, we don't know it all. We can't know it all because we don't work with mar merchants on necessarily every corner of the globe. And we work through a lot of agencies. So that, that's what I love about Bold. I love the fact that the, the business was humble enough to say we're one of the biggest and baddest app developers in the market. Yes, we, we understand that and we appreciate our position in the market. But by the same token, we don't know it all. And we're willing to take that sort of create that constant feedback loop with the industry. And that even comes down to, I, I know that your subscription product, for example, has evolved dramatically over the years and has improved dramatically over the years. And as someone who has had to scope completely custom subscription solutions before, I know just how hard subscriptions are to manage all the way from pause, resume, merge subscriptions, have different time spans of subscriptions, days, weeks, months, et cetera, have quantities based on subscriptions. And uh, subscriptions are just a, an absolute <laughs> minefield of user experience and, and not to mention engineering. They are an absolute nightmare. And you guys have just continued to steadily take feedback from the market. You've continued to pour more into that product. And then obviously, that worked really well in terms of being able to spin out that basic Shopify app into a module of your custom headless checkout as well. So it was a feels yeah. like a very natural evolution. Hey, we learned a truckload by it being a Shopify app for a very long time and getting rapid iterative feedback from merchants as well as industry advisors. But then once we feel like we've got it to a place where it's really rock solid, where it's really feature rich, maybe not perfect, but it's maybe 95% of the way there. Hey, now we've got a product that can actually be a standalone product in the market and in its own. Yeah, absolutely. We've always valued partner insights. You've been amazing and so many others that they're speaking with merchants and we try to speak with merchants as much as we can, but I think it's the partners, honestly, that really, and think outside the box of often what software can do and our subscription app I, i'll never say it's perfect because i always think there's will always be improving there's never going to be a point where i'm satisfied with any <laughs> with any of our products it's just the nature of the beast but the big thing with subscriptions and it's not it is complex and it's complex because 
it's it's no longer a feature it's not five maybe seven or eight years ago you would think of it as a feature where you'd want to add a subscribe and save option on your products and that worked and and that was what sold subscriptions because woohoo subscribe and save i can save five percent if i subscribe and save and that was customers were happy about that but that no longer is what makes customers <laughs> ecstatic that's just every store if you have any type of a product that is replenishable like it should have subscribe and save it's actually not even it's it's a more of a, a billing and a shipping decision like i don't want to i'll never buy cat food as a one-time purchase i just think that's dumb and doesn't make sense so if a store doesn't have subscribe and save i'll find one that does because i don't want to buy it every month so that kind of became table stakes and now but subscription and membership has actually become a business model and that makes it even more complex as, as brands would say that they are like subscription commerce is their business model. It's not just a feature that they are slapping onto a product. And so when it becomes core to your business model, it's it integrates into everything. It's uh, it's not just a, a widget that lives on a page. It's how is it extended into your CRM? If you use Zendesk for your support, how are your how are your agents managing subscriptions? Are you enabling them? And that's why we made like a, our version two that's complete <laughs> API first, completely headless as well too. So you can extend subscription management, like you mentioned, pause, edit, snooze. Maybe they want to do that in a website, but maybe they, I prefer doing that over SMS. I like getting a text message three days before my subscription's going out saying, Hey, your subscription's going out. If you want to snooze it a week, press one, skip this month, press two. If everything's good, don't reply or click three or press reply three to open an edit screen. I'd way rather do that than remember my logins for every page. So accountless subscription management is a big thing brands want to do. And when you can edit everything about a subscription through the API, that can happen in SMS, that can happen in voice, like Alexa, when's my next coffee subscription going? One week, snooze it a week, that, that kind of stuff. This is what brands want to do now. It's evolved quite a bit since <laughs> when we first launched that. And every partner is pushing it to be, when we think we've built everything that brands want to do, it's something else the next week that they're requesting. <laughs> so it's never ending. Yeah, when you just when you think you've cracked it, a, a merchant comes up with something wild and crazy and you think, actually, maybe that's not so wild and crazy. Maybe we should actually have that as part of our app, because if one merchant asks for it, you can guarantee that hundreds of other merchants have thought. I had the best example of this just last week, and this wouldn't be possible. It's a wine subscription business and they ah, it's like wine and different alcohols and a bunch of anyways re regulated goods let's just call it they needed a different merchant of record for every single state which basically means they need to change the payment gateway by state and in one state it might be one payment gateway and it, it, it could even be entire gateways like one it might be stripe one might be authorized one might be braintree or different accounts of individual gateways and the only other way that they would have previously been able to do this would have to have 50 different instances of a store and a customer comes on, identifies what state they're from, and then takes them to the subdomain of that store of that state. And then they're, but then the brand's mat managing 50 stores, but with headless checkout and subscriptions, they were able to have one store use headless checkout, locate where they are and they can do it IP based or they can do it where the customer self selects. And then we swap out the payment gateway depending on state. And that's the same way we we do, we handle um, multi-currency. If, if someone's shopping in one country, we present one gateway so that they can use authorized.net in the UK, Braintree in the US, Stripe in Australia or whatever they want. These are just like some of the things that you don't, like you don't even know the use case until brands push it. And that's why being a, an API based checkout really just enables everything. And so it's, and subscriptions and checkout are both 
API first. So it's all these cool things come up on our plate. And every time someone has a partner approaches us like, Hey, I got this client that wants to do this weird thing. I get a bit excited because we spent so long building this latest version that is this, and then seeing it solve for some of these use cases is really cool. And price rules is that if we think of your checkout yeah. experience suite as almost like a trifecta of headless apps, the price rules engine, from my perspective, is that third piece of the trifecta. You've got the checkout piece, which is fully customizable. You've got the subscriptions, which are fully customizable and API led and API driven and can be triggered and managed and updated uh, remotely via API. Plus you've got the price rules, which can manage ultra complex pricing models and promotions with you guys being that really that hub of truth, because typically what happens is if we think about your standard, if we, if we think about Shopify first, let's not even think about big commerce or anybody else yet. But Shopify has one of the weak promotional engines in the industry, possibly the weakest promotional engine in the industry. And you can only have one automatic promotion running at a time. And so I, I don't actually know any Shopify merchants that I'm aware of that use their built-in promotions because there's such limitations in terms of not only the promotion, but also because Shopify doesn't do B2B and it doesn't do multiple pricing uh, price lists. It doesn't support price lists because of mm -hmm. that. And it doesn't support it doesn't support a lot of the other things that B2B requires because Shopify has such a, a simplistic promotions engine and because it has such a simplistic pricing engine and, and model inside of it but for good reason. You know, they target DTC and B2C. They don't really target B2B at all. And because of that, they've relied on you and having your custom promos, which you guys obviously have apps for that inside of Shopify, you've got your fantastic, basically sweet. If we look at bold, at, uh, sorry, if we look at bold discounts and some of the others, you deal with that quite elegantly inside a Shopify environment, but sometimes merchants need even more than that, even more than what you can do inside of a Shopify environment with your apps. They need to get a little more wild and crazy than that. And that's really where your uh, price rules module comes into play. Yeah. 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 So think of any of the apps that like you'd see in the Shopify app store, they're specifically for Shopify. They work with Shopify. The price rules engine works exclusively with bold checkout. And it's a, it's, it's this actual, it's a sleeper tool that we, we don't talk about a lot, but it solves really complex pricing pr challenges for a lot of large brands. And it, so if you have Staples uses it, for example, they rely on it heavily. And actually every time you, every single Staples Canada, every time a page loads on Staples, we dynamically generate the pay, the prices on the spot. And it, there's a ton of different criteria that go into it. It can be based off, it's like over 5,000 different price levels for their customers. They have Staples preferred program. They have on average 200 promotions running at any given time on their store. They have location-based pricing. So not think things aren't always the same in, in each province. And so we sync all that together and we generate the prices on the fly. And not only that, we now sync if you're a state for the first time, this started four months ago for the first time in Staples history, if you're a Staples preferred customer, which they have this program where if you shop at Staples all the time and you become Staples preferred, you get better pricing online, you get free two day shipping it's like Amazon prime, but like for Staples, it's called Staples preferred, but they never had it synced with point of sale in their 350 retail locations in, in Canada. They haven't rolled it out in the US yet. They rolled it out in Canada as a test market for them. But for the first time in history, they if someone's a Staples preferred customer and they shop online, when they shop in store, they're able to sync pricing with their store. We don't power their point of sale. 
but their point of sale hits our price rules engine to give back prices if they're uh, a Staples preferred customer and we just it's just based off of their email. They also now have in-store kiosks where customers can look up prices real time and and it's like, they call it their endless aisle. It's at the end of each aisle. So that's just one example. We have brands, Metabolic Meals is a great one if you want to see location-based pricing. They're a meal plan subscription company that kind of think like HelloFresh, it's similar, but their metabolic meals is, I don't know, they're more like health-based. And if you exercise and work out, <laughs> their, their meals are focused around that, but they're made locally in all the different states. And so the price of the raw materials of food is different state by state. And so they have to price things differently. So depending where you are, the it the prices change dynamically and that uses our price rules engine to power that there's a lot of other use cases for price rules but it's we don't talk about it a lot and it's but it, it's just something and i wouldn't nothing you said with shopify is untrue but i would actually say with a lot of platforms that pri pricing and promotions and and it is not something that many platforms are strong on and i don't know that they should be it's a, it's always a philosophical question like you have your products living somewhere you have your cms Pricing is this weird in between. A lot of brands use, they have their PIM for uh, a lot of uh, product information, but the promotion and the, the pricing based off of different rules doesn't really have a place to live. Like it, maybe it makes sense to be in the platform, but I, I don't know if I would say it's Shopify is bad for not having a, a complex pricing because maybe it shouldn't live there. I don't know. But it, in it, what we've noticed is many platforms are actually, we're not able uh, to solve what we need to. So that was why we originally built our price rules engine and then it evolved into part of the checkout suite. So our checkout suite, you've, you've nailed it. They encompass uh, subscription, the checkout itself, the API first headless checkout, and then the price rules engine. There's only one other aspect of it that's been really big lately, and that's checkout flows, which is what we've noticing just in Staples example there was, this is just such a big topic lately that I, I like what we're seeing everything that happened with fast i guess it's been a few weeks now since fast shut shut down and the whole concept of one click checkout and it's funny because i've always I, i'm an amazon prime member i've actually never used one click checkout which is weird because i like i'm prime i see the button on every product page i've never actually clicked it and i i thought to myself the other day i'm like why don't i click it and i it's i, I narrowed it down to for me it was a few psychological things one is i have a bunch of stored credit cards in amazon and a bunch of stored addresses i always like to see the address it's going to i like to visually confirm so there's that fear that i might click it and it goes somewhere i don't want it to um, and i also think someone told me once that i used to just order like one product and then Amazon actually was our, our, our front desk person at bold. And uh, I would order one product and then another product and I needed new batteries click. And I would like, I'd go through the normal checkout, but I would order batteries and I'd have all these boxes. I always get stuff shipped to the office and I had all these boxes at the front and someone at the office said, man, like the impact on the environment by just ordering all those individual things. And I was like, geez, I never really thought about that, but hundred percent true. So since then I've started grouping my orders and I, I place an order at the end of a week or when I have four or five, unless there's like an absolute emergency, I'll, I won't just order batteries with one click now because I can wait. I'm just getting low on them, but for the cost of the packaging and the fuel and everything it takes to get that package here, I want to consolidate. And so there's a lot of reasons that go into it, but so I, I did a poll recently on, on LinkedIn and it, I just said for everyone who has Amazon Prime, the last time you ordered, did you use one click checkout? And it was 22% of people did. So one click checkout is something we do. We power one click checkout for brands, but we've never been, we've never said that speed is the ultimate metric that by which you should measure checkout. 
speed is important, but if you're, if you have a customer who's a B2B customer or who's a, who's a member versus a non-member, if you're a member at a store, speed actually isn't the most important thing you, you have, if a customer is a paid member, they aren't shopping at other places. So you have the opportunity to cross sell them and upsell them and try to maximize the average order value for that member versus get them through as fast as possible. Cause the one stat that none of these other one click checkout companies say, they'll say increases conversion 38%, but they never say, what did that do to average order value of one click checkout will always increase in conversion, but average order value often goes down because they're checking out with one product getting, going through faster. So it makes sense for some brands. It doesn't make sense for others. So what we, what we really cling on to is a, a concept of what we call checkout flows. And it basically comes down to four principles or four criteria four triggers that we think to affect every checkout. And that's who the customer is, what device they're on, where they're coming from and what products they're buying. And so who they are is, are they member, non-member? So I mentioned that, are they B2B? Are they B2C? Are they first time customer? Are they re returning customer? A lot of different criteria of who they are. Are, what device they're on, the obvious ones are phone and desktop, but now like it's in-store kiosk. Is it a ta tablet that a clerk is holding, a salesperson holding in a store? Is it a QR code? Is it SMS? Is it voice? There's We've got people checking out with SMS and voice now with subscriptions. So there's the devices have expanded. In-store QR code is actually becoming really popular that a lot of brands are wanting to have customers self-checkout. And, and actually Disney just rolled this out recently. I was at Disneyland and I can scan a QR code and check out right there. And I walk out the exit and I just show a QR code. They have one person at the exit scanning it. A green light goes on saying that I've paid. And he just said, would you like a bag or not? And that's it. So it's a self QR code checkout that I do for my phone. So that's a device where the customer is coming from is if a customer is coming from Instagram, speed matters immensely. Like your thumb is doing the thinking you're scrolling through Instagram and your thumb is just, it's like a mindless exercise. You're not on Instagram with the seeking out a specific product, you're on Instagram, just mindlessly scrolling, you see an ad for something. And if that checkout, that page doesn't load as fast as the next post, it's your thumb has a brain in it and it just goes back and keeps scrolling because it's a mindless exercise. But if you go to Google and you search for a specific product, like I'm looking for a specific snorkeling gear or something, and I search in Google. And so if Google is the source, Google search, Speed isn't as important. It still matters, but it's not as important as if it's coming from Instagram. So I might have the opportunity to upsell and cross sell that person a little bit more and have more functionality in, in, in the checkout or on the, th in other aspects of the buyer journey. So where they're coming from makes a huge difference. Emails very different as well too. referrals. Anyways, the list goes on, but the, and then lastly is what they're buying if, if they're buying one product versus many and what type of price point the products are at matter. So we take all these criteria in and we let brands create different flows based off of this criteria. So it's not just one checkout. It can be that if you have a logged in member coming from Google, they can experience one type of checkout. If you have a non-logged in member coming from Instagram, it can be a different checkout and they, and the different flows can exist on the same store. So you can do it to optimize for different, different triggers and different flows that customers coming through, or you could just do it just a AB test. And we have brands doing that right now, just testing. Does it make a difference how the page is laid out? How's it? And then just, and just split testing, check out flows. It's not a product. Like it's not part of our product suite. It's more built into the checkout, but, but this concept of different flows based off of this criteria is it's 
I'm a big believer in it, that this is going to be a big factor in a lot of the, like the enterprise brands that use our checkout in their growth over the next few years. Now, I've, I've always been a fan of flexibility. I've always been a fan of API first. I've always been a fan of microservices. I've always been a fan of SaaS. And basically yeah. ever since my early days of Magento, which I, did, I spent a lot of time in the Magento ecosystem. And basically once I made the move to SaaS or once I started seeing the power of SaaS, I never really looked back. And I've been a, basically all the partnerships, all the technical partnerships I have and my consultancy and everything else, they're all SaaS platforms. There's not one on-premise piece of technology that I use or recommend with my clients. Now, sometimes they've got legacy systems that we have no choice but to deal with. And some of those are on-premise. And I've had a lot of experience with plenty of on-premise tech, but SaaS is absolutely eating the world. Now, one of, if we had to look at a downside of mock, the mockification of the world, or if we had to look at some of the downsides of the headless proponents that are out there in the world is their total ignorance of the fact that the vast majority, I don't know what the hard statistics are. In fact, I haven't seen any hard statistics that I would trust, but based on my own experience and what I've seen over the last couple of years, I would say that we're in excess of 90, maybe 95% still monolithic deployments. And by monolithic, I mean your Shopify's, your big commerces, your Magento's, your where they, they, they power the back end and they power the front end. And they also power the checkout. And one of the benefits of obviously SaaS checkouts is the fact that they're natively PCI compliant. They're natively locked down by definition because they are PCI compliant out of the box. And they are typical, especially in the case of, of big commerce, they are part and parcel of your subscription fees that you pay for the platform. So you're not paying anything extra to put yourself through a, a Shopify or a big commerce checkout. They are included with the platform. And I guess the, the downside of the headless proponents out there is that headless is still very immature. And I think you'd even admit to that, that headless in general is still extremely immature. It is still very fragmented. There's a hundred different headless platforms out there. They don't have their own storefront engine in 99% of cases. And as a result of that, it's probably going to be a very long time yet before headless even reach 50% of the total e-commerce deployments. But I guess what your point is, and I'd love you to correct me if I'm wrong here, you are seeing opportunities that exist outside of the pure traditional product-based e-commerce experience, right? So you're saying, hey, for the Shopify's of the world, great. We've got our apps. We've got our, we've got our plugins there. You install them, you configure them, and you're off to the races. But for other environments that are not traditional e-commerce environments, that's where your checkout suite really starts to make a difference. It has an impact. Yes. And you're bang on. I, you're probably right with the numbers of 95%. It might even be higher. It might even be like 97%. And I don't, headless is, there's kind of some nuances here. There's headless, there's composable. So when, you know, mock is a microservice API based composable and headless. So there's four attributes uh, that make up, make something mock. Something can be composable, but not headless and by composable i actually prefer the term modular i use the word modular commerce a lot but it's this is what I, i'd say sometimes like if i asked you jason what do you use for for your office tech stack you right now me and you are on google meet but what email app do you use what word doc do you use what spreadsheet do you prefer is it excel is it google sheets is it what do you prefer for decks is it google slides is it powerpoint is it something else what do you use for your notes app is it OneNote, or is it Evernote, or is it something else? What do you, for video? So you, if you think about an Office stack, it's modular, it's composable, and everyone has everyone doesn't think twice about it because it's it's a lot further ahead. And you're right, it's like this. It's I would say it's past its infancy, but it's early on, and so the Office stack is a lot more mature. And I use a 
one tool for email. I integrate, I have Zoom integrated into my Google Calendar. So when I send an invite, it automatically adds Zoom and I use different tools for my to-do app, which sync with pulls right in. I use Fellow for my list and my calendar syncing. Anyways, it all pulls together. That's an example of modular composable tech stack that helps me that I'm picking for me the best in breed for what I'm doing. And, and for me, it might be different than for you. You might use a different to-do app. You might use a different calendar app. You might use a different, but you build your stack based off of what makes sense for you. And we're seeing that with commerce now where it's a brand will doesn't necessarily have to replatform and rethink like I'm not switching. I, I'm not that, that this does happen. Like where an organization says we're going to be a Microsoft organization and everything's going to be in Microsoft or we're Google and everything's in Google. But for the most part, people pick their stack and it's, that's how it is in commerce. You pick now what order management tool makes sense for you. It might, what's right for you and, and your consumer electronics company might be very different for someone else who is selling fresh food and they need to have a completely different order management system versus someone else who's selling wine. They have to have another completely different one because it has to tie into different state tax and age. There's a whole bunch of other regulations with alcohol sales. So, the, and then the CMS that you like, that you prefer might be different than the CMS that someone else's preferred. And then the, and the list goes on. And our philosophy or our thesis is that the market is moving this way. And I think it's even true for Shopify brands. If you looked at, just grab any 10 Shopify plus brands and ask them what they are using for order management. I bet you 70% of them don't use Shopify for order management. They're using ShipStation. They're using OrderBot. They're using ShipperHQ. They're using something else to manage their orders. And if you said, well, what are you using for your content management? What are you using for your product management? There, it's already a modular composable. Mm -hmm. There, they might not be headless. Headless doesn't make sense for everyone. In certain scenarios, it does. But you could be composable with and still use Shopify's front end. So there's different scenarios. And I think, but you're right, it, it is early. And I think, but every year it's getting easier. And I think we're going to get to a point where you want to swap out one order management, swap in another, swap it. It's not going to be swapped. There'll be some effort there, but we're getting every year, it's getting more towards that. And so what I'm finding a lot when I talk to brands is they don't want to necessarily replace their whole entire system. It's just a certain it's a certain component. So just last well, was a couple of weeks ago, we talked to a large furniture company. They're using Salesforce Commerce Cloud, very happy with it, but they are evaluating a checkout for, specifically for in-store QR codes, which we just were talking about, but they want to have it. So their furniture stores basically become a showroom. Customers can walk around, scan a QR code and see 3D images of the furniture and learn more about it and check out right there with the choice of having it shipped to their house, picking it up at, at a pickup location or reserving in the store or whatever they want. But the customer can self shop. They're going to keep their existing Salesforce Commerce Cloud checkout, but have uh, a different checkout for their in-store experience that's customized for phone, for mobile. It might be built into their native app. I'm not sure. And then pushed, it'll be pushed into the same order management. So if someone orders online or orders in store through bull checkout, it's all going to be pushed to the same order management, but there's nothing, there's no reason that they have to use the same checkout. They don't have to migrate to a new platform and that's composable. And it might, there's other scenarios where they might use a different piece of technology for some other, but that's, these are the conversations that I'm finding more and more now. It's not let's rip and replace everything. It's let's augment with this for this experience. And that's often how we come in. 
makes perfect sense to me. And it's similar conversations that I'm having with my clients about what's best to breed for any specific component or function mm. of the stack. So it makes absolute sense. Now we're coming to the end of our time together. It's rushed past and I so appreciate your time, but I got two <laughs> final questions for you. And hopefully this feels, Hey, this is the, hopefully these are real softballs for you. You're the host <laughs> of own your commerce, which is the, that's your podcast. It's the bold podcast, but you pretty much have stamped your, your personality on it. You own that, you run that, and you've made, you clearly are outgoing. You, this feels very natural to you. You, you clearly are a fantastic host. I've been on your podcast. Yours hasn't, mine hasn't come out yet, but it will come out shortly. And, and I really yell out. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. By the time mine, mine is out, yours is out we'll on mine. We'll mine and I just wanted to get your thought on the importance from your perspective, not only to your business, but to you as a human and as a person of own your commerce. How has that evolved over time and, and what is it? what benefits has it brought to you? And then secondarily, we have this concept of the metaverse and it's coming fast and furious at us, billions of dollars being poured into it. And obviously with you going headless, it means that your technology, because it's API first, can be plugged into almost any channel, including metaverse commerce channels. So I'd love to get your just very short take on the metaverse and how long you think before it's going to hit commerce mainstream with consumers and then love your thoughts on your own podcast and, and the benefits like to you as a human. And to <laughs> oh man, it's been, when we launched it, it was an experiment and we just, I really thought it was going to be a way to talk to interesting people like you and so many others. And it was. 10 times more work than I thought it would be. And there's been many times where I thought, oh, should I, is this worth it? But every single time I've even, it's, there's no question. It is, it, it's a lot of fun doing it. I get to talk to, I always say, well, if I just emailed anyone and said, Hey, can I have an hour of your time to talk? Like, good luck. But if, if it's on a podcast, it's a different story. So it's a great way to, it's a great way to meet people. And I think it just, it's like, you've been so gracious to, to let me, talk about bold and what we do on your platform to your audience, to your listeners. And I think when someone does that, it's like opening up your home to them. And it, it's a wonderful way to, to meet, engage in other people's communities and to open up your community to them. It's very different than a blog or anything else. Like it's a personal, you're in the earbuds of people. <laughs> and I'm a huge podcast listener. I listen to many episodes a day of, so I'm a big fan of it. And, um, yeah, you're, I, I will see which episode comes up first. For those listening, Jason was also on our podcast and we've been a bit backlogged, but we're we're rushing through them now. So the, he, he might be on our episode. Who knows? Maybe it'll go out the same day. We'll see. On the uh, the metaverse topic, i old enough that I remember when I bought my first first web domains when I was 16 years old, I my friends all thought I was crazy. And I they said, they said, what the heck is a, why would you want a domain? Like what's a domain on the web? Like even the word web sounded as weird as the word metaverse now a web like because people think in people think in physical terms and they try to apply it to or they apply try to apply their physical what they know of the physical world and they try to apply that to the digital world and it, it just doesn't work and so when i would say i own this domain and i own this they're like, well, what's it worth? It's it's not going to be anyways. I I bought hundreds, and many of them were worth worth a lot. And but it's it, it was physical property on the web. The metaverse is it's it sounds like the conversations I hear people whether they are for it or against it. The conversations really remind me of what those conversations were like thirty 
something years ago or just around 30 years ago. And it, 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 I'm, I, I fully believe that it, there's something there. What it, what, I mean, there is already, but like how it pans out, I think I'm on the team of I'm, I'm watching very like closely and, but I, I'm, I don't proclaim to have any crazy insights that are going to ooh and awe the listeners. I'm of the camp, pay attention, be involved, join it, be a part of it, get involved in NFTs, buy NFTs, be a part, get in it right now because the people that were buying domains in the early nineties and were being a part of the web then were way ahead when things hit mainstream eight years later. And so I think right now the important thing is to just get in, dabble, play around with it and don't go in with the mindset that like the way it is right now is the way it's always going to be. Cause I think a lot of people think that and then they go, ah, there's nothing here. Like the metaverse is a joke. And I see articles written like that. And I just, I think that's the wrong mindset to have, just have an open mind. And I just knew, I don't know, I'm a believer in it, but how it all pans out, I am excitingly, excitedly watching is where, is my stance. 100% in the same camp as you. Don't have all the answers, but man, am I watching with <laughs> great anticipation and starting to dabble now and getting into crypto and other Web3 components just so that I don't get passed exactly. by in my own knowledge and my own understanding of it. And yes. I, I want to make sure that when my customers start asking me questions, I've at least got something, some direction to point them in where they can start learning a little bit more and have you know one eye on the future, one foot in the future, but also one foot in the present of their business. Now, Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. We've added, introduced a brand new segment to our podcast, and it's probably one of the most po popular segments of our podcast now, which is where I flip the script. I turn the microphone over to you. I let you ask me one question, any question at all, and I do my very best to answer it. So over to Jay Myers from Bold <laughs> Commerce. Rock me and hit me with your best shot, man. Okay, I'm going to ask you a question about some news that just came out today with Amazon getting rid of their cells. So they, a few years ago, acquired cells, which is an e-commerce platform. They re they just announced your earlier in New Zealand time. Have you read the news yet? Yeah, I saw, I saw the news. That, I, did, the, I did see it this the, morning. Yeah. I actually saw okay. it coming overnight. So something I wonder a lot about, so you know, whether or not this means Shopify or, or sorry, Amazon is going into the platform space or not, because that's always a, a debate. Something I wonder about is how much do plat how much will platforms even matter in five years if where people are selling is it going to be through just like Instagram and TV and is it going to be through things like Netflix and other shows or and then just could is there a world where Amazon just like fulfills everything and things are sold all over is that the direction Amazon's going or is it something else or how relevant are platforms in let's say five years. That's just something I've been thinking about lately. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, that's a fantastic question. I think Amazon for its part is doing its very best with buy with prime as its first sort of cab off the rank with this thinking. I, I think they don't want it to matter where you transact. I think they want to be able to clip the ticket on that transaction in some way. So whether that's through payment, whether that's through logistics, whether that's through some sort of membership-based model like Prime and extending some of those Prime benefits other than just cheap logistics and some of the other benefits of effectively being a Prime member don't have anything to do with the payment and don't have anything to do with the logistics, but they have other benefits, other very tangible benefits to Amazon customers who have paid for that membership. And I think Amazon's, if, if we want to call it their kind of beautiful version of the world through their lens, it is, hey, we don't care what channel you sell through. We don't care what platform you use to, to achieve that sale or secure that sale. We want to be part of it and we want to play part of it. 
And it, it really, if you think about what they're doing already with AWS, and that is effectively, we can think of AWS as their business model, which is to externalize an internal cost and take a cost center and turn it into a profit center by turning it into a service that is then exposed to other merchants to use and to leverage. We can think of logistics the same. We can think of Prime the same. We can think of all their payment methodology. We can actually even think of their media plays as being part of that model because it drives the flywheel of demand for Amazon full stop. And more importantly, it, it drives demand for Prime overall. And so they're using Prime as that thin end of the wedge to get into and get their snout into the trough of every single transaction. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, you, you rightly point out, I think Shopify has got a really hard decision on their hands. It is going to be hard. And, and that sells thing. What it leads me to believe is that Amazon has been super clever about acqui hiring over the last, if we look over the last five, six, seven, ten years, no major tech company can hire at the rate that they've wanted to. Now, obviously, with the economy looking to have a radical slowdown over the next 18 months, that's changing. And Meta has frozen hiring and all sorts of stuff over the last week. But historically, over the last five years, let's say, not a single tech company, Amazon, Shopify, Big Commerce, no one has been able to hire because there hasn't been enough good tech people out there at the rates that they want to. So what they've done is they've just said, look, we'll just acqui hire. We'll buy this company and buy that company and buy this company. And even if we don't do anything with their tech, we've just gained 50, 60, 70, 100 good people in this specialization that we now can absorb into our Borg. And so yeah. for me, I think that Amazon is extremely long-term strategic. And I think if we go back to what Jeff Bezos said, and I remember when Amazon was not profitable for many years. I rem remember when Amazon's share price was hammered very early on because they weren't throwing off any free cash flow. They were losing mm -hmm. money for many years. And this yeah. was long before AWS even came along or was a glimmer in Amazon's eye. And Jeff Bezos was very clear with the market. We have we have a 10, 20, and 30-year vision for this business. It is not it is not a one, two, and three-quarter vision for this business. And he also made it very clear to the industry when he talked about very openly about his one one-way door versus two-way door decisions. They are going to be very cautious about any one-way door decision they make, which means it's hard to unwind that decision. Whereas it's a two-way door decision and they can come back through that door if it doesn't work out and they can put a bullet in it and it doesn't harm the company in any way, then they're going to take that and they're going to just do it with hardly any thought behind it. They're just going to go, hey, this looks like a good decision today based on all the information we have. It's not going to hurt us in the long term, even if it doesn't pan out, let's do it. Mm. So I, I, I see sales as a two-way door decision that they took at the mm -hmm. time and it was never going to hurt their business but i tell you i think buy with prime is an absolute master stroke and i think everything off amazon up till now has been very seat of the pants but this feels very intentional to me so yeah. i i think that's where they're going i think they're being very intentional with trying to get their snout in the trough of every transaction that happens on the internet in some way it's so interesting i about a month before they announced that i just i did this linkedin post where i took i took chubby shorts it's a d2c site and i mocked up i don't know if you saw it or not i mocked up their product page and i put in buy with buy with them check out with amazon or something to that extent and it got like a ton of engagement a lot of comments and then about Four weeks later, they announced buy with Prime. And it was just, of course, a crazy coincidence, but it's something I've thought of for years. I think what's interesting is like right now, everyone's talking about is Amazon, is Shopify going to allow it or not, or this or that. Is, is I wonder if that's even Amazon's motives. Is it like they want to have buy with Prime in in movies and in in media, in in other things? Like it's like the the e-commerce platforms is is that where transactions are actually even gonna is that a concern is it if you could check out with prime right from 
Although I don't know if Netflix would allow them or not, but anyway, you could sure you could for sure from Prime Video. But do they even need to go to a store? Right, that's the even deeper question. So well, I have and some time. particularly if Amazon eventually allows you to white label it. Now there's the killer. Right. There's the absolute crusher. Right. If you can white label it without the necessarily the the prime benefits, but with the checkout and with the wallet and the addressing and everything else, do they do they effectively kick every other one click checkout in the industry out of business so into touch? Anyway, Jay, I've taken too much of your time already. I super <laughs> appreciate your thinking. I super appreciate your wisdom and your experience in this industry. I've totally, thoroughly enjoyed chatting with you, and I'd love to do it again soon. And uh, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Ah, the pleasure is all mine, man. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for listening to the At The Coalface podcast. If you want more At The Coalface, you can subscribe to our premium e-commerce and digital newsletter, At The Coalface Digest. <laughs>